Hello and welcome to Contemplations. This is part two of the origins of the English language and I'm going to be picking up where we left off with the Vikings. But just a, a quick recap, as it was a week ago, um, we talked about the Indo-European origins of most European and uh, Western Asian languages and how that's the reason why there are some commonalities between lots of these languages. And we went on to talk about the, um, the Celtic roots of some words, although Celtic hasn't really, um, of course, Celtic re representing lots of different tribes with different languages of their own, um, but it's a blanket term to refer to these uh, tribal societies. Um, they didn't necessarily contribute nearly as much as uh, the Anglo-Saxons, and of course uh, that includes the Angles, the Jutes, and of course the Saxons themselves. And um, these languages, of course, come from North Germany, southern Denmark, and so this sets the basis for what is English and is referred to as Old English. And this, of course, has changed over time. And one significant thing that the Vikings did was change how it was spoken to a certain extent. I'm going to be talking a little bit about that, then talking about the Normans, and then talking about um, Middle English and later English, as well as going into words that were introduced to the English language from the colonial times, so a bit recent. Um, I'm going to be reading some Chaucer and Shakespeare to give you examples of um, Middle and Early Modern English, um, so you have a frame of reference. And hopefully by the end of this you're going to have a good understanding of the sort of loose timeline of the English language. Of course, I'm not going to be going into any of the sort of pedantic linguistic terms that you need a, a dictionary to understand. I'm going to try and keep it relatively simple and talk about how the language changed in a meaningful way to uh, an English speaker, be it native or not, as well as going through some of the history that shaped that. So I want you to cast your mind back to Scandinavia in the ninth century. Um, you probably um, might find that quite difficult to do, but land was um, relatively unfertile in many places. Uh, it certainly wasn't as fertile as some parts of the continent or the British Isles, and this made life difficult because um, there was an ever-growing population in Scandinavia um, compared to, say, the continent. And so um, to avoid, basically, mass starvation, people would draw lots, and whoever drew the, uh, the short straw, I'm not sure whether it's straws or how they exactly drew lots, but people would basically rely on chance as to whether they would stay in their native country or would have to just be sent off and leave. And uh, this is the main motivation for many of the, the, the Viking invasions, and so it makes you perhaps a little bit more sympathetic towards the people who did it, because of course the uh, sort of English narrative is that they're a bunch of murderers and, and rapists and they're just out for blood and, and plunder. A bit like pirates where they, they've clearly made a choice to behave like this, but it is not exactly like that. Um, it, it was a product of circumstances and although they certainly did bad things and I'm certainly no apologist to the Vikings as far as I'm concerned, uh, they terrorised my ancestors. Um, Although it is worth mentioning, I do have 1% Norwegian ancestry from my Scottish side, uh, but no Danish whatsoever, so the, uh, the Dane law had no, no effect on my ancestry whatsoever, because uh, uh, 
the very far south and the very far north where the Danes didn't really uh, mess about. But uh, I do have 2% Anglo-Saxon and 0.5% uh, French. This is, of course, relevant because um, it's worth mentioning that these people, they may not have had as much of an effect on, say, the genealogy of the British people, but they've certainly had a significant effect on the language we use. Like uh, 0 0.0, you know, 0.5%, should I say, French is uh, a lot less than French, um, a lot less influence than French has had on our language, should I say. Um, I'm a bit tongue-tied. I've come off from uh, doing the live podcast with, with uh, Dan. This is recording on Tuesday. I've had a couple of beers, but don't worry, this isn't going to affect the quality of contemplation. <laughs> Although when I'm reading uh, some of the um, Middle English um, verses, I may struggle with some of uh, uh, the correct pronoun pronunciation, sorry. But anyway, back to uh, the Vikings, uh, and specifically the genealogy. Um, most modern English people have about a third of their genes from the Anglo-Saxons, it's worth mentioning, which is a reasonably high amount. I was actually quite surprised it was that much, because my understanding was that they didn't have as much of a, an imprint on the genes of Britons as um, their language and culture had affected us. But um, it seems like a third is, is a reasonably generous portion. Of course, it varies in, depending on what part of Britain you're from, if you're Welsh, or if you've got lots of Celtic genealogy like I do, then it's going to be far, far less. Um, but I just thought it was interesting to compare, um, but this isn't necessarily the focus today. But it's worth to sort of uh, contextualise, I suppose, um, how important the linguistic influences are over perhaps others. So the first Viking raid um, on the British coast was um, the monastery of Lindisfarne, and this is relatively famous, but this is off the northeast coast, and this was in 793 AD. So we're long since past, you know, 8,000 years ago um, BC with the Indo-European languages. Um, so there's a long period of um, increasingly regular um, Viking raids, and then around 860 AD, these Viking raiders began settling in Britain, normally starting around sort of the East Midlands, certainly the east coast of Britain. Um, but eventually they took over Northumbria, East Anglia, and parts of Mercia as well, Mercia being sort of the Midlands. And of course there's a map up here, um, but just to explain it um, to you while you're listening, this is um, representing the kingdom of Guthrum, so this is a specific period. Um, in this history, and of course the borders changed a fair amount. So this is just a general vibe, but depending on which period um, of history you're talking about, this could change a lot. But this, I think, this period represents where the Danes and the Saxons had influence, I suppose. So you've got sort of the West Midlands being more Anglo-Saxon than the East Midlands. Um, Kent being more Anglo-Saxon than East Anglia. And of course, the term East Anglia, which is the term we use to this day, comes from the Angles. Uh, so um, you tend to get a lot of clues as to Britain's history from the names of places. And if you know what to look out for, 
Um, a name tells an awful lot about a place, but we'll certainly be getting onto that later. But um, yes, the Danes settled East Anglia all the way up towards sort of Durham Way, but it's, and then eventually they, they stop up sort of Scotland Way. But um, yes, and then you've got more Celt in, in Wales, which of course, as we covered before, was the Anglo-Saxon name for foreigner. And um, around sort of this Viking period, uh, Devon and Cornwall, down in the, the southwest, my neck of the woods where I grew up, um, became vassal states or direct um, parts of Wessex, which was an Anglo-Saxon kingdom. But um, I'm not going to get too much into the history, and um, I'm sure um, Bo in uh, Epochs has something far more of a deep dive into that if you're interested. It might be a good complement to this. But, um, but because, of course, the Vikings were largely Danish, their language was largely mutually intelligible to the Angles, the Saxons, and the Jutes that had settled in England, because um, back in their point of origin, they would have more or less been neighbours. And so it makes sense that there's a lot of overlap there. And it wouldn't necessarily be the same as, say, American English and, you know, English English, <laughs> or Australian English and American English, or vice versa. You, you get the idea. It's not like that where, you know, there's a slight accent. There are differences in words and things like that, um, but there's more of a shared history than, say, modern-day English and, I don't know, modern Italian. In fact, there's a, a big deviation there, but of course there's still some shared points of origin, there's some shared overlap, you can kind of understand some words. Perhaps a more um, accurate example would be modern French and, and modern English, although the Normans come in and make that a bit more complicated of a comparison. But uh, in the lands that um, they conquered, this is the Vikings, of course, they did live alongside the Anglo-Saxon speakers. And, uh, you know, once they'd conquered the lands, they weren't necessarily interested in, you know, murder and killing them. It, it wasn't necessarily useful for them. They wanted people to, you know, run farms. And having a larger population to do that was helpful. And so they did coexist with one another. I don't know how civilly that was. Uh, but we're not necessarily, again, going into the history. This is just language. But a form of bilingualism likely developed. Of course, this is speculation. Um, but it seems to be the case from linguistic analysis that this happened. And um, this is important for multiple reasons. Um, this may explain, for example, why there's seemingly a grammatical influence of Old Norse rather than it just being loan words. Because you find. Um, when there's slight contact, you know, as they were here for about 100 years, you get lots of loan words, but not necessarily changes to grammar. When there are changes to grammar, it means that there may well have been people who were primarily either Nor Old Norse speakers or, you know, Old English speakers um, that learnt the opposite language, and they um, brought their grammatical approach from their native tongue to this new language, and then there's this sort of interference whereby the standards, um, the grammatical standards that is, change slowly as lots of people um, participate in this bilingualism. But of the words that have either a Germanic or Old Norse origin, 
50% of those words have cognates, meaning they've got equivalents in both languages. Um, 36% of them are only found in Old English, and 14% of them in Old Norse. So it still seems like Old um, English was the dominant force in Britain, which makes sense because there were more Anglo-Saxons than there were um, Norsemen or Northmen or Danes, whatever you want to call them. But there are only about 150 loanwords, but there are some very important ones here. I'm just going to read some of them for you. So, egg, um, steak, meaning um, this actually comes from the word to fry. Knife, um, and the K was pronounced in Old Norse, so it would be knife or knif, um, which is more accurate to the Old Norse. The word bylaw, meaning village law, which it still means to this day. Die, as in, you know, to kill someone. Anger, hit, <laughs> take. Um, you, you can see why these words entered um, the vocabulary, considering what they did. Um, ugly, <laughs> leg, skin, bread, which I thought was an interesting one, because you would imagine um, bread would have been in the language already. We also mentioned the word, of course, bannock. Um, which is a Celtic word for a specific type of bread, or at least in the modern day it is. Um, bag, ball, down, fog, muck, rotten, lump, scrawny, bark, root, sky, are, as in, where are you? Um, and you know, we mentioned these, these cognates previously. Um, the words Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday are quite often attributed to Norse gods uh, Tyr or Tyre, um, Odin and Freya respectively, but um, it seems like they may well have been named after the Anglo-Saxon equivalents of these gods. And um, this is, of course, before they converted to Christianity. So it would be Germanic paganism, which of course has overlaps with Old Norse because uh, obviously they're geographically quite close. So um, Tyr, Wodan and Freya, um, or Friga, depending on uh, how you pronounce it, um, of course. Doesn't really matter anymore. No one, no one pronounces it like they used to. But these are obviously similar to one another, and so to attribute it to one or the other is a little bit pedantic. But it seems like it may well have been the Anglo-Saxons, and it's just that the Old Norse didn't interfere because they were so similar. So it makes sense that these days of the week are as they are. But it's interesting that our days of the week are pagan. Um, I didn't necessarily know that um, until researching recently. It's also worth mentioning, as I mentioned in the previous part, that place names are a gold mine for linguistic history because they don't nearly change as much as other things. Place name doesn't necessarily have to correspond to your spoken language as much because it's sort of very idiosyncratic to a place in time. Um, but town names ending with by, um, which is the Old Norse for town, so places like Grimsby means Grimm's town. So there's a, a bloke called Grimm, presumably a Viking, um, who had a town, and that's where the name comes from. Uh, so Fawnby, probably a, a bloke named Fawn, or Crosby, a bloke named Cros, uh, owned this town, and uh, that's where it comes from. Not particularly imaginative, seemingly, because it's just me, town. You know, um, you could have thought that, I mean, at least when the Americans 
um, started naming towns. They named it after landmarks rather than themselves, although uh, you've got Jamestown. I'm not sure if that's named after a a person or not, but still. Uh, You also um, got, uh, you can thank the uh, Old Norse for uh, they, them, and their pronouns. Um, They introduced those, of course, not in the non-binary sense. It's more just you're referring to a group of people as uh, normal people used to use those pronouns only about 10 years ago. So uh, don't listen to the claims of, oh, Vikings were transgender. Oh, they had, they didn't have as much of a gender binary. Nonsense. I mean, they were, they were manly men, right? I, I don't think that if, you're, if your knowledge of that throughout all human cultures in modernity is anything to go by, they're not going to be all wishy-washy and uh, gender-bending, are they? Come on. But yes, that's where this comes from. There wasn't necessarily this distinction in Old English. It's also worth mentioning as well, this is a very important point specifically to linguists, is that in modern English, the verb comes before the object. And what does that mean? Well, it means that I can drink water rather than I can water drink. That would be um, what would be the case if you flipped it around the other way. Um, which is actually a more Scandinavian way of doing it rather than Germanic, because there is a difference between them, as I said. Um, for example, you can even look at modern Dutch, the Dutch, Dutch, sorry, <laughs> excuse me, um, which is a, a Germanic language, and it would be ik kan het water drinken, um, or it kan et water drinken. That's probably a better way of pronouncing it. Um, and of course, water become, comes before drink. So rather than I can drink water, it would be I can water drink, which to an English speaker, um, you can understand what's being said, but it sounds very, very grammatically wrong, doesn't it? And it seems like that this was the sort of onus to change things. And we'll see that uh, when English starts to be standardized, it was sort of the East Midlands dialect. Of course, the East Midlands was part of the Dane law um, and so would have had more Viking influence that was the language that was the standard to um, standardize, I suppose. <laughs> Probably a better way of putting that, talking about language. Um, but yes, it was that one that was the one in which all other English was standardized by the Normans, but we'll, we'll get onto that in a greater detail later. But of course, the Viking influences aren't massive, certainly not nearly as large as the Anglo-Saxons on uh, the course of the English language because they were the very foundation. But they certainly gave us lots of words that we still use today fairly commonly, as well as changing some of the grammar, which, um, as I explained, seems to come from this bilingual period of the Dane law when people would have probably had to have spoke Danish and Anglo-Saxon to be able to get by because they would be trading and producing uh, goods that needed trading would need to communicate various things. It's not like people weren't talking to one another um, if they were living next to each other. But the Normans now, um, which of course started in 1066 with uh, William the Bastard, um, which I prefer to call him over the Conqueror because uh, I feel like he got a little bit lucky. Um, But this sort of ushers in the Middle English period, which the, the boundaries are debated by linguists and, and scholars, but loosely I've settled on 1100 to 1500 um, AD as this sort of boundary. But of course, 
there's a case to change each upper and lower bound depending on who you talk to, but you get a general idea of when it is, right? So after the, the Norman invasion, um, again, the history, I'm sure you'll be better off looking at epochs and uh, I'm pretty sure um, those covered William the Conqueror before. Um, but after the conquest, they created a linguistic hierarchy with Anglo-Norman at the top. You could call it Old French, um, which is different to Parisian French, but um, I'm just going to either call it French or Norman, really, uh, because it's easier. Um, but yes, it's also worth mentioning as well, the Normans themselves were Vikings that had settled in northern France in what is now known as Normandy, funnily enough. It's funny, that, isn't it? Um, but yes, um, they were originally of that origin, but they um, integrated far more culturally um, with French culture and um, you know, were Christian and respected Latin. Um, in fact, they spoke Latin a fair amount. And so it's fair to see them as part of a continuation of continental culture um, rather than Scandinavian, I suppose, although they still had that martial element about them that made them quite good at warfare. Um, and they also were, were ardent reformers, but we'll talk on about that in a second. Um, so the Norman court spoke exclusively in their version of French, and most writing was done in Latin, which is important because also one would expect most people to be bilingual as well, which in and of itself would suggest that there's going to be some cultural exchange between French, which of course is Latin at it's a Romance language in its base, as well as Latin proper. Um, so the Normans contributed a lot more than the Vikings, um, around 10,000 words to English, and 75 of which, which remain in use today. So a lion's share of the words they introduced we still use. Um, and a very, very important point, one of the most important points in this whole episode is that um, lots of these words had Anglo-Saxon synonyms, of course, because the aristocracy, the elite, the court, um, were very separate from the Anglo-Saxons they conquered. There was a sort of parallel system of whereby the Anglo-Saxons, the common people, carried on as they would have normally, speaking their version of English, and the Normans spoke Norman French, um, unsurprisingly. and. Um, this um, parallel setup here of the uh, invader aristocrats speaking their own language and the common people speaking their own language meant there were lots and lots of synonyms. And that's why in modern English, there are lots of words which mean the same thing, which in many ways is actually quite a good thing because you can say that it's part of the reason that English is such a rich language and, and why it's so versatile is that it's inherited lots of these words. And so these words can contain specific meanings, although they could even have meant exactly the same thing in the past. The synonyms have coexisted for long enough that they've started to fill out their own niche and get, get to express sentiments that you might not get in other languages. And uh, Bo actually pointed this out to me, that in Russian there's only one word for blue, in English, there are innumerable, aren't there? You know, you've got turquoise, azure, um, loads of different um, ways of referring to the colour blue. And that's just one example. And it adds a lot more poetry to a language. And as I'll get on to later, 
um, in Middle English, we start losing the inflection, that thing that adds the poetry. If you um, remember back to me reading Beowulf, um, there was almost a sort of, um, it reminds me of Italian in that there was an E at the end of words that would be pronounced. It wasn't so um, hard and cut off, but this starts to fade out. But then the introduction of new words means that you lose this inflection, but you gain a, a richer vocabulary. In the, and so you don't necessarily um, simplify your means of expressing yourself. It simply changed the manner. There's more words, but it's less about intonation necessarily, which is good for me because I'm quite monotone. So uh, good. Um, so at the end of the Middle English period, Norman French made up about 30% of the vocabulary, which is a sizable amount, really, isn't it? Um, because, of course, this was spoken by the aristocracy, but they still had to interact with people, didn't they? You, know, you can't rule a people by just simply not talking to them. Um, I think uh, it must have been begrudging if they truly adopted French culture to talk to people that were beneath them, but uh, I guess they must have done it for this cultural exchange to happen. Um, it's also worth mentioning that Middle English saw the introduction of future tense, as Old, old English didn't have this. So, uh, yes, our ability to talk about the future is thanks to the French. Um, don't let Carl hear me say that, but uh, I think it's probably quite a useful thing. I imagine it would have been introduced anyway, because lots of other languages that didn't have this in the past um, had it introduced later um, without being invaded by the Normans. Now, as I mentioned earlier, when Middle English became standardised, um, they chose the East Midlands dialect to be the basis. And this is the middle point, of course, it being the Midlands, between the northern, more Scandinavian-influenced language, because, of course, up, up at the north side, it was further away from uh, Wessex, um, the kingdom of the Saxons, which eventually went on to unify England. Yes, one of the few good things the Saxons did. Um, this is my uh, Celtic bias speaking. Um, and uh, they were less influenced by them and therefore had more Norse influence than the South. Of course, the South being far more Anglo-Saxon. And so it makes sense that you pick a place in the middle um, where there's probably going to be the most common ground. And so they use this to standardise it, which is quite sensible, actually, and pragmatic by the Normans. They could have just said, you all need to speak Norman French. And there wouldn't have been a lot that people would have done about it other than maybe not be able to learn it. Um, this standardization also meant that there was more rigidity in how words were ordered in, the, in a sentence. And of course, it lost its inflections at the end of words that um, might well have conveyed meaning. Um, this may also well have been eroded by the fact that they would have um, made communication between Old Norse and Old um, English a bit more complicated. Um, because, of course, they wouldn't have understood the inflections quite as well as the words, because it's more culturally specific. It is also worth mentioning as well that this was already on the decline before the Normans turned up, and it just seemed to be a trend that accelerated, which may well have happened anyway. But by around about 1300, we find um, someone adding the following note to a margin of an old English text, and it says, non appreciatum propter 
Yodoma incognita, or not appreciated because unknown language. So that tells us a lot about how far it had come by around this sort of time, right? Of course, 1066 they'd invaded by around 1300. They're saying, I don't appreciate this unknown language, this old, Nor um, old English, sorry. So although this was the basis for um, a lot of people's common day speech, uh, it was completely incomprehensible to them by this point. It is worth mentioning as well that the person writing in the margin of a book would likely be literate and would probably be more likely to write in Latin, but one would presume that if they're reading Old English texts in the first place, they had to have some comprehension of English at the time of them writing this in the margin, right? They wouldn't just set out to try and read the text without any comprehension of it because that would be a fool's errand. It's not like they had dictionaries at the time that they could kind of look up words. They actually had to learn the language. So it's fair to say by this point, the Old English period was definitively over. If people are saying, yes, I simply can't understand this anymore, it makes sense. And you'll, you'll see what I mean when I actually read out um, some Middle English, because it's very different to Old English, because you can actually understand what's being said. Um, I know there were some people in the comments saying that, yes, I understood what you were saying, but um, I think there were non-native English speakers, and I think that interferes somewhat. But it's also worth mentioning that the Normans did a lot of restructuring of institutions, and so a lot of the words that entered English of these 10,000, obviously I'm not going to read them all, um, reflected this. And um, you can also um, get a measure of how the Normans influenced our culture based on what kind of words were introduced. And I'm going to go through some in categories because you get a measure for how um, this post-Norman society operated. So first and foremost, let's go through some legal terms. Attorney, bailiff, chancellor, chattel, country, court, crime, defendant, evidence, government, jail, judge, jury, larceny, noble, parliament, plaintiff, plea, prison, revenue, state, tax, verdict. And these are all sorts of legal terms that are synonymous with the law today. If we were made to you know, list some um, English terms that were to do with the law, these would be the ones, right? Um, and these all have their roots in Norman French. Of course, I'm not reading the original. I don't think that's necessarily that useful. I mean, if you're interested in the original terms, I'm sure they're online somewhere and there's someone far better qualified to pronounce them correctly than me. I mean, my modern French could leave a lot to be desired, so I'm not going to try my hand at old French. So this is the quintessential example of the cognates. So the Anglo-Saxons did the farming and the French did the eating. And so the words used correspond to who's doing what here. So the first word for the animal comes from Anglo-Saxon, and the word for the cut of meat comes from the French, and this still works to this day, right? So for cow, Anglo-Saxon, beef would have been the, the Norman French. Calf and veal, and then you've got swine and or pig and pork, sheep and mutton, either hen or chicken and poultry, deer and venison. And of course, these differences highlight quite nicely the hierarchical structure that the Normans set up, doesn't it? Because 
The Normans are eating the meats, the nice cuts of meat, and the Saxons are doing the hard work of farming it, probably selling it to them. But um, you've also got the word boil and broil, butcher, dine, fry, um, roast, and stew. So means of cooking also come from Norman French. And uh, yeah, whenever the French criticise our cooking, say, our terms for cooking come from your language. If we've messed it up, it's your fault. Thank you for watching that clip from my series Contemplations. If you want to sign up to the website for £5 a month, you can access that series, which comes out 1pm every Saturday. Thank you for watching, and goodbye.